if you ache for truth, goodness, and beauty, if you're hungry for a Christianity with substance and strength, if you long for a faith that's big and bold and biblical and all about Jesus Christ, if you're inspired by the idea of one church that has spanned 20 centuries, 24 time zones, and two hemispheres, enfolding every race, nation, and language, then you're considering Catholicism. Welcome to Considering Catholicism. I'm Greg Smith, your guide to the faith, life, and civilization that is historic Catholic Christianity. We're in the midst of a mini-series of episodes about the Eucharist that began with episode 36, Making the Eucharist Matter Again. You can find it in the archive. Now, during the last few installments in this series, we explored the general metaphysical miracle that occurs every time a Catholic Mass is celebrated. And we looked at the first two of three particular miracles that are associated with the Eucharistic prayer in the Mass the miracles of consecration and transubstantiation. In today's discussion, Corey and I continued by looking at the third particular miracle, communion. Now, this can be confusing because the Eucharist is also called the Sacrament of Holy Communion. It's given that name because in a real sense, communion is the proper end, the, the point, the, the fruit of this sacrament. What does that mean? Communion with whom? With God? With each other? And how? In what sense do we enter into communion with him or our brothers and sisters in the church? There's a lot of confusion about this in the church today because we've absorbed some very non-Catholic assumptions from the broader Protestant or secular culture around us. And Perhaps our leaders haven't always done a good enough job explaining the difference between community and communion. Well, over the next 30 minutes, Corey and I are going to do our best to make this vital teaching of the church as clear as we possibly can. So, Corey, we've been having a series of conversations here about the miracle or miracles mm -hmm. that occur in, in the Mass. And we talked in the first conversation about sort of the metaphysics of the Mass, how the Mass in and of itself in, in total is sort of a miracle. Right. And then we talked about two of three sort of distinct or particular miracles that occur within the Mass. And the first was consecration, in which the priest acts in the person of Christ and the Holy Spirit is invoked. And then secondly, the transubstantiation, the transformation of the elements, the bread and the wine, into literally the body and blood of Christ, which is something that every good Catholic knows and believes but has maybe a hard time 
Well, I, I take that back. Maybe not every good Catholic does know and well, believe that. Well, it's a good Catholic. Well, <laughs> okay. I know. Okay. Somebody's listening is super offended. Um, <laughs> so we better explain that real quick because we didn't really talk about this in the last episode and maybe we should have because one of the things that prompted this whole Eucharistic revival mm-hmm. was a, a number of uh, reputable surveys that were done over the last number of years that found that most Catholics don't know or understand or believe in the miracle of transubstantiation. And I think those distinctions are important because it's probably a big spectrum where some simply don't know and, and understand what the teaching is. And you can't you know, fully believe something that you don't know and understand. And then there are others who do understand the teaching but reject it. Right. And I think a lot of it is just a muddle. And, you know, we didn't really get into this in that episode because it was getting a little bit long, but the fact that this is this teaching of the church, and we didn't really talk about how even within our own church, it's often misunderstood and why, like you say, you can uh, not understand it or not, or simply not know that it is, that that's a doctrine of the church. I, you know, I, somehow you've just sort of slept, walked or stumbled along. And that's a failure of catechesis where the church maybe hasn't explained it uh, well or often enough or clearly enough. Or you, it has been explained, you just, you think it's ridiculous and you think it's just a symbol. So we kind of covered that last time that it's not a symbol and it, and it is objectively true. And so you go back and listen to that episode if you haven't. But in this episode, we're going to talk about kind of the follow-up to that, which is if we think about consecration as when the Holy Spirit is brought down to the altar for the consecration of the elements, and we think of transubstantiation as being what happens to those elements... What I want to talk about today is the third miracle, which is communion. It's what happens when we partake of the elements. So when we come forward in the mass and receive the bread and the wine, we receive the body and blood of Christ, we experience communion. And I think this is interesting because we call this, sometimes we call the sacrament in total holy communion. We talk about communion and that is in a sense, its effect or its purpose. But like we said, there's some distinct elements that lead up to that. But let's talk now today about that, which is why there is a purpose Mm -hmm. to consecration and transubstantiation. There's a purpose to the Eucharist. And the purpose of that Eucharist is communion. Right. Well, I think you see it as as an end through a, a process is building towards that end. So even the, the different stages that we've talked about. So with consecration, you have Christ making himself present in the person of the priest. And then in transubstantiation, you, you have that deepening, that completion of his presence in changing the bread and wine into his body and blood. And so that, that's him bring, making himself present, bringing himself to us. And then how do we complete that or consummate that is that we, we are drawn into that. We are brought into communion with him in the sacrament. Um, and so the people are involved and receive him and we are brought into his body that has been made present. So let's slow down just for a second mm-hmm. and take a little bit of a detour and talk about what communion is not. Sure. Okay. It's one of those words that you know, as time goes on, how the word gets used in popular usage, where communion or community, in some sense, the absolute definition of it, if I went to the Oxford English Dictionary, hasn't maybe changed, or there's like one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight definitions in the Oxford right, English right. Dictionary. 
But in popular usage, when we talk about communion, particularly we talk about sort of a horizontal communion between people, community, mm-hmm. right? Shared community between us. And communion is often thought of as that time where we all come together and that the purpose of it is for us to have this shared experience. Now, that is part of it. And we'll get to that in a second. But I want to sort of dispel some, maybe some misunderstanding yeah, I, I, I think that, and we'll, we'll go into this in, in further detail, but I, I think it would be a error to see that as the only thing that it is or as sort of the, the starting point of it. Right. That, or, or that uh, it's limited to that, right? right? Like you say, it's the only thing that, that in some sense, all that's really happening here is we're coming together. Now, you and I have occasionally joked and maybe in a slightly irreverent way about there was this like uh, this classic you know, holiday cartoon, The Grinch That Stole Christmas. Mm. And maybe some of our listeners have, you know, watched The Grinch. And at the end of The Grinch That Stole Christmas, where he, uh, the Grinch changes and he restores the stolen gifts to Whoville, the Who's of Whoville all come out and they hold hands and they sing the Who song, right? And they la 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 la, and they all hold hands around. And in a sense, the purpose of the the the, the film there, like the purpose of the holiday, is to bring us all together and have like this kind of communal kumbaya moment. Well, and the the thing to note there is the agency. It's it's the Who's coming together to. It is them affecting their own community or communion. Right. And so it would be a mistake to see the Holy Communion of the Mass as us, by our effort, bringing ourselves together. That's the wrong direction of agency or action. Well, or that that's only at a human level, not at a supernatural level. Like that's right. what I'm driving at, too, is that it's wonderful when we all get together. You know, and you and I have talked about this before when it comes to church events. There are people that will say, I... You know, I'd rather be at the church picnic than at this. I mean, there are people that sort of value the social aspect of the church. Mm-hmm. And there's some fancy theological words that get tossed about or philosophical words about this uh, transcendence and eminence, right? Mm-hmm. So eminence partly can be thought of as sort of the horizontal aspect of the church, right? It's more than that, but it's, it's how God sort of spreads himself or how the spirit spreads himself sort of imminently, horizontally. And what happened in really the last maybe 60 years, 50, 60 years, at least within American Europe, is there has been an emphasis of the horizontal aspect of the church. It's bringing us together in shared values, shared social values, shared social interactions, right? And this has been held up as sort of the highest value. So that if we get together and we all feel good about it and sing the Who song, that that's sort of the purpose of the church. And what's lost in that is a sense of transcendence, mm-hmm. the sort of vertical aspect of the church between us and God. And that what we do amongst ourselves is the, the proximate cause, the ultimate cause of that is the vertical aspect. And the reality, of course, is that both are true. Mm-hmm. But that when we think of the sequence, the logical sequence, the imminence follows the transcendence. The only thing that brings us together is the person of Christ. Well, and the only thing that makes that bringing together 
meaningful that makes it any different than us coming together because, you know, we all are in the baseball collecting, baseball card collecting club or, you know, a, a singing group or, or what have you. And those are all, you know, fine things. I'm not, not knocking them, but those are not eternal theological realities in the way that the church is. And so Christ brings us into communion with him. And that because we are members of his body, we are members one to, e- to each other. Um, the, you know, the, the hand and the foot are different parts of the body. You know, they have a relationship with each other because they are part of the body, um, because they are connected to the head and the head is Christ. So in, in Holy Communion, we have communion with Christ and that communion overflows or affects, brings about the communion that we have with each other which is part of its purpose, of course, and, that, and it is good. And you do need both the transcendent and the imminent. But if you flip them around, if you make it that the, the imminent is more important and that it comes first and, and even, you know, drive it to the nth degree and say that it, it brings about our well, that's, that, that's with it, God. Right. So I'm going to interrupt here, but that, mm-hmm. that's, that's it is that inversion is the notion that we come together and when we come together and have mutual social interactions and love and relationship, that somehow that has this divine, that ascends to the divine. And that, that is ex- exactly backwards. It is that the divine, it's not that we come together and have this kind of social community which then ascends to the divine, it's that the divine descends Mm -hmm. and assembles us, which is what the church is called. So the word church is derived in Greek from ecclesia, the Greek word ecclesia, and ecclesia meant an assembly, and it meant a very particular kind of assembly in, in New Testament Greek. It meant the assembly of like a town hall meeting. It was you assemble the people to vote or for a critical matter. And so the notion of the church is we are the, and in fact, the word actually in Greek literally means ek, so ek, out, ex, and then klesia, which comes from the Greek verb for speak or call. So it's basically those who have been called out. So if you said like, hey, there's a, a critical matter in our village or our town, and we're going to call everybody to come out of their homes and assemble for this important matter, Right. That's what's really going on. That was the word that the first Christians, the apostles, used for the church. It was the ecclesia, those who have been called out by God and assembled by him for some manifest purpose. Well, and the call is coming from God. It's not like somehow we're, we're calling Correct. him. Yeah. And when this gets backwards, this is where we get accusations that the church is a social club or a country club or it's just a, uh, some kind of an organization. Uh, uh, as Pope Francis said, it's just sort of a, a poorly funded non-government organization, an NGO, right? That just comes together to like distribute, you know, food, you know, have food pantries and sing songs and, mm-hmm. and eat food and whatever. And if it's, that's all the church is and it's lost its divine power. Well, and the thing is that that the Eucharist, the the Catechism itself says us that the Eucharist commits us to the poor. It commits us to doing all the things that the Church does. Um, all of that flows from the Eucharist. But if we reverse that, then it all loses its transcendent value. If if we start from God coming down to us and making us members of His body, and then we go out and we do His work and we bring His presence to the world, that's rightly ordered. But if we're doing it apart from that ordering or in the reverse order, then we are doing it without his power and his presence. We start doing the right thing for the wrong reasons Mm -hmm. and without the power, as you say. 
so let's bring this back to we, we come down the aisle mm-hmm. to receive the Eucharist, right? I'm going to bow and say amen and right consume mm-hmm. the Eucharist, the body and blood. At the moment that I do that, I have had, I am in communion or there is a communion established in two directions, right? Mm-hmm. The first is I have become united with Christ. So by literally, as we talked in a previous episode, uh, in John chapter six, where Jesus says, eat me, <laughs> right? Uh, you know, basically as I consume him, as I consume his life, I become one with him. I become united with him. And that's the first and primary driving force of communion mm-hmm. is for me to be united with Jesus Christ by consuming his essence, his body and his blood into me, which creates this what mystical, mm-hmm. metaphysical union with Christ. It's why I am a child of God. It's why there is Christ within me. Right. St. Augustine talks about becoming what we receive. Yeah, becoming what we receive, right? When we, you know, if you think about it this way, when we talk about Christ in me, well, Christ is in me because I have literally taken him into me, you know, through, through the Eucharist. And that establishes this, this vertical union between God and I. But when I take communion and step aside and you're behind me in line or you're ahead of me in line or whatever, and we all take it together, we now all are united in him. And that makes us united together. Mm-hmm. And I think getting the sequence of this right is really critical. It's not that we, as we said, it's not that we've become united. And then it, it's like, if you think of all of these lines converging to a single point, mm-hmm. Right converging into Christ. That's different than us saying, hey, we're going we're gonna to form this club and then our club is going to affiliate with Jesus. It's that all of us has converged from all of the vectors, from all directions, right? From every uh, language, tribe, and nation. We've all, con- you know, throughout every century, we've converged this central point of history, which is Christ. And as we converge to him and are united to him, we become then united to each other. Right. And we, we talked about before um, that the Eucharist is a participation in the eternal, um, that, that God is eternal, that the sacrifice Christ made exists outside of time and space, and therefore he can make it present to us throughout through, you know, different times and, and places when the Eucharist is celebrated. So I'm not only uni- I'm united with God first and foremost when I receive the Eucharist, but I'm not only united with the guy in front of me and the guy behind me, but the, you know the people who received at Mass last week and last year and last century and from Christ Himself and going f- forward into the future as far as far forward as possible um, throughout space, and that it's not I won't perceive in this life the fullness of that communion that comes later when I. I receive, you know, the consummation of all things when I die and, and also then when, when Christ returns. But those realities are made present to me in a real way um, that transcends time and space. Right. You know, it's interesting is, you know, you, I, I don't lose my identity in that. In other words, I don't become dissolved right. into some collective consciousness right. or identity. The you church know. is not the Borg. Yeah, <laughs> right. Church is not the Borg. I don't, I don't become like a, a drop of water, you know, into the ocean of, you know, God or something like that. I am me and all the particularness that God has made me, but I am mystically connected because we've converged to the single point. And like you say, 
people from every race, tribe, language, nation, every century, every century that has occurred before, every century that will occur afterward, all of us. And that's what's really amazing, you know, when that is the miracle of communion, this miracle that in some way I've become united to the second person of the Trinity. Mm-hmm such that he is in me and I am in him. You know, Paul uses this language all the time. It's Christ in me and the ways that Christ is in me, but also how I am in Christ. Mm-hmm. Paul uses both of those, those terms. And I think it's interesting. Uh, it, it's like a subject and object. Christ in me, but I in Christ. And we have that wonderful thing, the breastplate prayer, the breastplate of a, a St. Patrick, where he talks mm-hmm. about Christ in me, Christ over me, under me, all, you know, through me. All these ways that I become united in Christ and he to me, that is an incredible miracle. Absolutely. And yet also when you think about it, because I'm there, everybody else is there too. Mm -hmm. And that's where Paul talks about the body of Christ, right? So you want to talk about a little bit of that, that we become part of this mystical body. Right. Um, so he, he uses that language um, of the different parts of the body um, are all distinct. I mean, a hand is not a foot, is not, is, is not a shoulder, is not a knee, et cetera, et cetera. Um, but they are all together and they, they work together. They mutually support each other and they are united under the head. And Christ is the head of the body. And so our connection with him, um, scripture Christ uh, expresses this in other ways. He talks about the vine and the branches and the branches growing out of the vine and, and only having their life coming from it. There are different ways we can, we can conceptualize this or, or visualize it, but it comes down to the fact that our connection to each other comes from our connection to Christ and our connection to Christ is where our life comes from. And that's what we're receiving in the Eucharist is the life of Christ and the presence of Christ and the connection to his body. Yeah, I mean, as just you say, as, as a body is animated by a spirit, mm-hmm. animated in its life essence by the blood that flows through it. And so as we, as Paul says, become the hands, the feet, the whatever of the various parts of the body with Christ as the head, that animus, that life essence of Christ flows through us and it coordinates us, mm-hmm. right? That's where the body of Christ acts in coordination, because when we are all following our vocation, we're all following Christ, we act in this kind of coordination. And again, it's not being absorbed into a collective. It's being called into our place and operating as ourselves through the vocation and fulfilling of Christ. And yet, you know, I, I think that's just an amazing thing to think about how, and I, I'm astounded every time I go to Mass and I think and I, when I come down, how I not only have been united to the creator of the universe, You know, Colossians 1 tells us that, you know, Christ is all things are created in him and through him and he holds all things together. Mm -hmm. But that also I am now in in union and deep communion with all other Christians, past, present, and future everywhere. And that we we have become animated as this single sort of complex entity. Mm -hmm. Now that is a miracle. Now, before we move off this, uh, wrap this up, I, I want to sort of end on a downer note, right? Okay. <laughs> Typical. Oh, yeah. Oh, I don't know. I don't like typically end I'm on just a downer. Kidding. Well, I'm maybe. Just I don't know. I'm, I'm going to have to think about that. Do I always like to <laughs> throw in the, the, the downer at the end? Maybe. Uh, but I do think there's a downer that we got to talk about here. And that is discommunion or as it's called, excommunion. Mm-hmm. Because this is what happens in the church when people become ex 
communicated, and they're asked to refrain under church discipline from taking the Eucharist. Right. And that that is a discipline. You want to talk about that? I mean, why does the church do that? And how does that relate to this uh, miracle of communion we've been talking about? Yeah, of course, it's a very grave thing, as you say. Um, It's because the church takes the Eucharist seriously as the true body and blood, soul and divinity of Christ, and that it takes seriously the fact that we must be truthful when we receive communion, that it is a real thing and not just a symbol. And so if we are not truly living in accord with that communion, if we have broken communion through our actions, through our beliefs, that we cannot, in essence, tell a lie or, or an untruth in, in receiving the body and blood of Christ. Um, if we are not truly living out that communion with Christ himself and with our brothers and sisters in the church. And so, as you say, that can be a disciplinary thing. A bishop can either warn a person not to receive the Eucharist or positively command them not to present themselves for communion. Of course, there are people, whether they be Protestants or members of other churches or people who are not Christians at all, who are not in communion with the church and and therefore cannot receive because it is a real thing happening. And we can't, if we, by our actions of receiving, contradict what is happening. We, we are not in communion, but we are receiving communion. St. Paul talks about eating and drinking a condemnation on ourselves, that this is a, a seriously disordered and dangerous thing. It's, it's something that would harm the person. I think it's important to remember here that this is not the church punishing somebody in the sense that they can say, like, your parents go, okay, I'm going to ground you, right? Or I'm going to dock your allowance or whatever. Mm-hmm. Take away your, you know, Xbox privileges. It's not that. It's recognizing that this person is not in communion at the moment with the visible church. Mm-hmm. So if I behave in certain ways that make me or I rebel against the authority of the church in certain visible ways. Mm-hmm. So for example, let's just put our cards on the table, right? There's a lot of people right now that say, hey, we're in a time of great struggle over certain issues and you're going to have politicians that are going to defy church teaching on abortion or euthanasia or whatever else. Mm-hmm. And people say, well, how can this person who's a Catholic politician go out there and not just passively, but actively work towards abortion or euthanasia or whatever against the church, actively campaign and actively support it and actively work to implement that and call it a, a, call an evil a good thing, mm-hmm. and yet then on Sunday show up the Mass and take the Eucharist. And if a bishop asks them to refrain, it's not so much that they are punishing them is they are asking them to recognize that they are at that moment in discommunion. Well, and the point of it is to wake them up, essentially, to draw right. them to to repentance and to change, it, it's a wake-up call. Yeah, that's, that's a sort of a purpose, but I, 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 I so want yeah, to say not, not exclusively, because it is yeah, also the recognition. It's a recognition. Of reality. It's a recognition yeah. of reality. That's what I want to kind of dwell on, is yeah. that the communion, that just, which is invisible that we've been talking about, mm-hmm. is also a visible communion with the church. And you can't be in invisible communion with Christ and the church triumphant when you are in discommunion with the visible church militant. 
Mm-hmm. Right. It's both. And, and, I, and I think that the one, because Catholicism is an incarnational religion, that is why we enter the church through baptism and first communion and whatnot. Or if we're a convert like you and I were, we enter the church and through confirmation. And because we are then in visible communion with the visible church, we are able to be in invisible communion. Mm-hmm. But all of this happens at that moment when we come down. So to kind of finish this little mini-series, we've talked about the miracle of the Mass in totality, and then we've seen these three distinct miracles that occur during the Mass, where there's the consecration, the transubstantiation, and then the communion. Mm-hmm. So when we talk about the miracle of the Eucharist, we can see that it isn't total a miracle, but it's composed of discrete sort of, uh, what, component miracles. Right. And we're going to be having coming up soon, if you uh, are uh, participating in the course at the Lakeshore Academy of the New Evangelization, we're going to be t- looking at the history of some of these extraordinary Eucharistic miracles. Right. So we'll have... You want a, to give a plug for that? Yeah. We'll, we'll have a class called the Miracle of the Eucharist, which will cover um, in greater depth and detail um, the miracles that happen as in the consecration, the transubstantiation, and in communion, um, and then also um, other aspects of it, including what we mentioned an episode or two ago, um, extraordinary miracles of the Eucharist, where the Lord uh, makes plain through something tangible and visible, whether it be be blood or, or other signs that he is present. Um, and that'll be in coordination with an exhibit that will, uh, for those of, of you who are in West Michigan and are able to come to uh, an exhibit at Our Lady of the Lake in, in Holland, Michigan, on these extraordinary Eucharistic miracles. There's also lots of information about that online, um, both on the Lane website and on Considering Catholicism. This is an exhibit that that travels, so it, it may be um, possible to see it in other places. Um, but but in, in summary, Lane and Considering Catholicism will have a lot more on this as we head into the fall and forward. As the, among other hats, as the communication director for Lane, where can they get this particular information? Yep. So go to lanecatholic.org, and then we'll also be posting things here on the, the podcast website, consideringcatholicism.com. Excellent. Thank you, Corey. Thank you. Thank you for listening. My name is Greg Smith. And if you've enjoyed this podcast, would you please hit the like and subscribe buttons wherever you get your podcasts? And please share it with others. And if you're curious about the Catholic worldview and faith, the Church and its saints, or Catholic history, culture, and art, then visit consideringcatholicism.com. And email me to let me know what you think. Greg at Catholicism dot com.